The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. About three years ago, I got a notice from uh, Spirit Rock that a nun from Thailand was coming and would speak about Yashodra, the Buddha's wife. Well, I was very interested. So I went up to hear her. And up there, I met a woman named Jacqueline Kramer, who has written an article about Yashodra and also has written a book on mothering from a Buddhist perspective. I actually was on a panel with her a couple of years ago. Um, So the information I have comes from Jacqueline and this nun and... Aya Tataloka, who is a nun in the East Bay, um, has been the preceptor for the nuns in the last couple, three years that have been fully ordained. Um, She has studied Yashodra and lent me a book called The Lady of the Lotus. And very fascinating book. Um... I don't know that it's 100% true, but it's uh, sort of um, the closest thing that we have to who Yashodra was, how she was, how she and the Buddha related and interacted. So uh, I think it's important for us to be aware of Yashodra and be aware of the story. Her complementary spiritual journey. So that we have another female role model. We're quite fortunate here in the West, I think, to have many female Dharma teachers. Um, but Pajapati, the Buddha's stepmother, has really been the main female figure. And that's very wonderful. Uh, We have her statue out here. Um, But I think it's also very nice to have the Buddha's wife. Of course, he was not the Buddha then. He was Siddhartha. But have his wife as an equally strong female role model. So I'll say more about that afterwards. Yashodra... Her name means bearer of glory. Interesting. And she and Siddhartha were born at the same time, the same year, the same month, the same day, the same hour, the full moon in April. But they were in two neighboring villages or clans or whatever they were at the time so that their fathers were the kings, which I think does not have the same connotation as we think of king now, but the leaders of those two villages. So they um, they were, in fact, cousins. I'm not sure if they were first or second cousins, but but they were cousins. At that time, um, you know, the caste system was very strong in India, and they were of the same caste. So, uh, you know, people were limited 
as to their choices of partners. They had to be within the same caste. But actually it was much more than that because um, Yashodra and Siddhartha, well, let me, let me back up and start with their mothers. <laughs> their mothers became pregnant at the same time. And they were both told by the sages, the, the wise religious men at the time, that these were auspicious pregnancies, that their children would be great leaders. And they didn't say what kind of leader. They didn't say whether it would be a secular leader or a religious leader, but they would both be great leaders. So, of course, both assumed that their children would be male. And, of course, Yashodra was not. So her, fa- her father, Supa Buddha, was quite disappointed when she was born, as he was expecting a male. But he very quickly grew to love and respect her in her own right. So when it came time for the young Siddhartha to take a wife, which at that time was, I believe, about 16, uh, there are a couple of different versions of the story, but apparently, you know, a decree went out or some notice went out that, um, that it was time for Siddhartha to pick a wife. And so the women, the young women, the 16-year-olds from the neighboring village came to the palace to meet Siddhartha and for Siddhartha to meet. And when Siddhartha and Yashodra met, their eyes locked and they knew instantly that they were the one for each other. They remembered that they had been together in past lives and they remembered that this was to be their last life and that they were to make the spiritual journey together. So it was what we would call love at first sight. Now there was another story that suggested that Siddhartha won Yashodra in an archery contest. (laughs) So I don't know. But anyway, apparently uh, it was destined that they were to come together. They recognized each other. They were both apparently very, very good-looking people. Siddhartha was very handsome. Yashodra was very beautiful. And so they made this lovely couple. So they were wed, and I guess at that time the wedding ceremony was in at least three stages. There was a ceremony at the palace where Siddhartha lived, and then they went to Yashodra's village, and there was another ceremony then, and then there was a third, and I don't remember exactly what that was. But then they moved to the palace where Siddhartha lived. They moved um, with his father and mother, which was the custom. And it said that uh, they lived a very happy, blissful life on the palace grounds. There were apparently lovely gardens, and they spent a lot of time in the gardens, and um, they did whatever... (laughs) 
whatever wealthy ruling class families did at that time. But they were uh, very much in love and very happy together. They did apparently, from time to time, take a ride out into a nearby village or community where they did come in contact with her. They did see um, lepers, untouchables, very, very poor people. And it said they were in awe and they didn't know what to do. This was, this was strange to them. As we know from the stories of, of the Buddha or Siddhartha, um, he was very protected on the palace grounds and didn't know about sickness, old age, and dying. And it seems unusual to me, maybe it does to you too, that they would go into a poverty-stricken area and not know what to do, to be so taken aback, but not knowing what, what to do. So they were both very spiritual, and they both felt the plight of these people very deeply, even though they were totally unsure what, what to do about it. They really understood each other, and they were very, very close. And I say this because it becomes important at the point that Siddhartha leaves. So they were married for 12 years, and she did not become pregnant. Siddhartha was encouraged to take another wife, which was the custom at the time. And he refused. He said, no, you know, Yashodra was the only one for him and and he would not do that. But finally, finally, she did become pregnant and had a son, as we know, named Rahula. And it's said that Rahula was a very um, happy baby, very easy baby to care for. He didn't cry a lot. He didn't um, cause much trouble. He uh, was just very content. So meanwhile, Siddhartha had been being groomed by his father to take over his father's place when he died, that is, to be king of that community. But this was hard for Siddhartha. He never really liked it. He hated war. He didn't like the violence. And, of course, the tribes were constantly in conflict and warring, as as continues today. Um, But he just just wasn't... uh, happy with with following in his father's footsteps. He didn't want to do that. And the signs apparently were there for a long time that he was probably not going to take over uh, from his father. So, as we know, shortly after Rahula was born, and we don't know exactly when, Sometimes the story is that that night, 
probably it was not that night. Probably it was sometime down, down the road. Uh, but apparently Rahula was still an infant. He was still a baby. When Siddhartha um, decided that he must leave, he must go and search for the answer to human suffering. And as the story goes, he did not tell Yashodra, you know, I'm leaving tonight. Um, but they were so close, and she understood that he was on this spiritual path, and I think had an inkling or knew that at some point he probably would leave. And this is the part that's very hard for many people, especially us Westerners, who um, don't understand, you know, this man taking off, leaving his wife and newborn baby to go on his own spiritual path. But I think it's important to remember that he wasn't leaving a wife and child unattended. (laughs) They were living in the palace. They were well taken care of. So it wasn't like he was abandoning them. And so the story goes, he and his wife were so close and they understood each other so much that he knew that she understood. And even though it might be hard, it would be okay. And in fact, that's what happened. She was apparently quite distressed when she woke up the next morning and discovered him gone. But she did understand. She did realize. His father and mother, but particularly his father, not so much. They were horrified. They were apparently very, very upset. Poor, you can imagine poor King Sudadana here. For all these years, he had protected his young son and uh, kept him in the palace, um, grooming him to take over so that he wouldn't go off and become a spiritual leader. And then he finds out one day he's gone. That's just exactly what he's done. So apparently King Suddhodana was not happy at all. And it was Yashodra that kept reminding him uh, not to speak ill of Siddhartha, not to be upset that uh, he knew this was Siddhartha's path, that he needed to do this, and, um, and please don't be mad at him. And apparently that's how uh, Yashodra held it. She, although she missed him terribly, and she was so sad that he was gone, she knew also that it was his path, that he must go, and she accepted that. And in fact, although he did not return for seven years, um, news did come back to the palace of what he was doing. So when he left, he had, had warned or had asked his charioteer, Chana, to have the chariot ready, and he took him to a certain spot by a river so far away and asked Chana to drop him off. And of course, Chana was, was a little concerned about doing this, but, but Siddhartha assured him that he would be fine and this was what he wanted. And, and so Chana had no choice but to leave him. So at that point, the Buddha, or Siddhartha, 
took off his clothes and wrapped himself in yellow cloth. And that was what he wore then from then on. So as news would come back to the palace of what Siddhartha was doing, and Yashodra would hear, then she followed him. So when she learned that he had discarded his clothes and was wearing only yellow robes, she too took off her clothes and wore just yellow cloth. And when she learned that, um, that he was not wearing any jewelry anymore, which he had been as the king's son, she removed her jewelry also and never wore it anymore. And then she learned that he was eating only one meal a day. And so she started eating one meal a day. And then she heard that he was sleeping on the ground or on the floor rather than on the comfortable beds that they must have had at the palace. And so she, too, refused to sleep in the comfortable bed and from then on slept on the floor. So she was mimicking in a way. She was following him all the way along. And it said that the night that Siddhartha was enlightened and became the Buddha, that he was able to share that experience with Yashodra. He, um, he was able to telepathically or whatever um, uh, send that experience to her and she also was able to experience his enlightenment. So Rahula, their son, grew. And as he grew, as he became older, as I said, um, Yashodra never uttered a negative word about his father. She did say to him that when his father returned, he must ask him for his inheritance. And of course, I don't think Rahula at the time knew what that meant. But after seven years, as we know from the Buddhist story, um, Siddhartha, he wandered uh, throughout northern India and studied with several different spiritual ascetic teachers, um, and he thought they were all wonderful, but he knew none of them were able to give him the answer to this burning question within him, which was human suffering and what to do about it, how to alleviate it. So with each one, he would stay with them for a year or so, learn what he could, develop um, great meditation skills, deep samadhi, but ultimately he would leave. And finally, as we know, he became so emaciated, so thin, he was down to eating one kernel of rice a day, and he became so thin that he was literally on death's doorstep. And at that point, he realized this was not the way to enlightenment. He was getting thinner and thinner, sicker and sicker, and he was not getting enlightened. So he gave up the ascetic practices. He accepted some, some rice porridge or rice and milk from a young uh, woman in the village. 
And he remembered the time when he was about 10 years old during a harvest festival that he had broken away from the group and gone to sit under the rose apple tree. And while he was sitting there, he experienced such deep peace and contentment. And as he remembered that, he said, I will sit under this tree, now called the Bodhi tree, apparently a wild fig tree, and I will sit here until I realize the answer to my question. And so he did. Now, of course, we don't know whether he sat for a night. The story is told in terms of the three watches of the night, but we don't know, of course, if that was one night or several nights or how long it was. But he did sit until he was able to realize what we now understand as the Four Noble Truths. So then he traveled a a little bit more, and finally, after all this time, he decided to go back to the palace where his family was. And so at that time they had runners that would take messages, you know, back and forth. So um, so there were runners that, that went to the palace to let them know that now the Buddha was on his way back. Well, you can imagine, of course, the family and all the people in the palace were very excited to see him, to have him come home to that, them again. They had heard news of his enlightenment, They had heard news of his teaching, and they were very, very interested to hear what he would have to say. So finally he did come back, and King Suddhodana, you know, encouraged Yashodra, his wife, to come to the gathering. There was this huge gathering to welcome him and where he was going to speak, and Yashodra refused. She would not go. She said, no, no. He will come to me. And so she stayed back in her palace or her part of the palace. And the Buddha arrived and gave his teaching to the people, his parents and the people of the palace. And they were very, very taken with what he had to say. They listened intently. And and in fact, both his father and his mother became um, followers of his. And that reminds me, I neglected way back to say that both Siddhartha's and Yashodra's mothers died within a week of their births. Um, We don't know how, but probably uh, complications of childbirth, which wasn't uncommon at that particular time. Um, Siddhartha, as we know, was raised by his mother's sister, Pajapati. His mother was actually Maya, but uh, he was raised by Pajapati. And Yashodra was raised within her father's palace um, by the courtiers and, and the people that were there. So after the Buddha finished his teaching, his talk, 
to the people of the palace. He asked about Yashodra. He said, where is Yashodra? And he was told that she refused to come. And so he said, I will go to her. So he did, in fact, with two attendants. Because by that time, he was developing the Vinaya, the uh, set of rules for monastics, for monks and nuns. And one of the rules was that a monk could not be alone with a woman. So he very properly um, took two attendants and went to Yashodra. And she was ecstatic. She was so happy to see him. She fell at his feet and was, was clutching his feet. You know, at that time, um, the feet were uh, uh, so important. They were, they were ways of honoring the person. So washing the feet or, you know, massaging or holding the feet was a, a sign of respect. Just like with Christ, you know, the washing of the feet was, was a very important ritual. Um, but Siddhartha, or the Buddha, then said to her, No, Yashodra. And she looked up at him, and she realized immediately that he was no longer of this world. That, um, you know, they were former husband and wife, but... Uh, they were no longer husband and wife in the in the re- this relative world since since so the buddha left and of course she yashodra was very sad to see him go again but he returned a couple of times and she continued her her spiritual practice she continued um following his teachings and finally when Rahula was old enough, oh, and, and while he was gone, she was very instrumental in raising Rahula, their son, to follow in his grandfather's footsteps. So Siddhartha refused to do it, but she was training Rahula to do it, which I'm sure, um, you know, made the king happy and probably made life at the palace <laughs> more more pleasant for her. But finally, when Rahula was old enough to leave and go join his father, he and his mother both did. So <laughs> imagine how Sudadana felt, felt then. Um, although he, he very much respected the Buddha and his teachings, um, he... He wanted a, an heir. He wanted someone to take his place as king, to follow in his footsteps. But it didn't happen. So Rahula and Yashodra left and followed the Buddha. They didn't always go where uh, the Buddha went. I think Rahula followed him more. Yashodra uh, tended to stay in a particular monastery. And she became a very, very loved and respected teacher. And apparently the way she taught was she would go out into the village 
and she would help the women of the village with whatever they needed help with. Um, so she wasn't going and preaching what the Buddha had taught, but she would go and offer her help, help with the children, help with husband and wife relationships, help with whatever the women of the village needed. She was, uh, I guess, part healer, part therapist, part teacher, <laughs> and she became very beloved by the women. She had a way of teaching, a way of um, not allowing the women to, to um, stew or become obsessed with certain problems. She had a knack for being able to turn uh, the situation around and have the women see it from a dif different perspective. Today, it might be like we say, don't take it so personally. It's not about you. <laughs> you know, this is your child having to break away or this is your husband not understanding or whatever, whatever it was. But, but she was able to to use the Buddhist teachings in such a way that she could help the women to work with their issues without blame or without being hurt or without, um, uh, you know, causing more upset. And so the women followed her. The women um, really liked her and became very, very close to her. And many women... Not all, of course, but many became uh, nuns, uh, female followers, along with her. And apparently there was a monastery where the women stayed. And from time to time, the Buddha on his travels would come and stay there. Not always. Sometimes he wouldn't, and a couple of years or three years would go by before Yashodra saw him again. But then eventually he would come back to that monastery. Um, so she taught for many years until she was 78 years old. Now remember, they were the same age. They were born at the same time. So a couple of years um, before they would be 80. Uh, and I read this story in two different ways. She decided she was tired and it was time for her to die. It was time for her to let go. So she went to the Buddha and either she asked his permission to die or she told him, I'm going to die tonight. <laughs> I don't know which. But anyway, um, uh, he gave her his blessings and said, yes, of course. He also asked her to perform miracles. And the reason for this was so that people would see and understand that she was enlightened also and that she was as powerful as he. She want, he wanted the people to acknowledge and honor her as, as much as they did him. So she did. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what the miracles were, but, um, but she did certain things to show that she too had these special powers called cities. You might hear that term from time to time. We don't talk a lot about it, but, um, but many people 
uh, with long-time spiritual practices, develop these um, paranormal powers. Uh, things like, like being able to be in two places at one time, being able to read people's minds, being able to communicate, this kind of thing. And then she sat down in meditation and died. And it said that the earth shook and there was lightning and great um, activity, just like when the Buddha, in a couple of years, would die. So uh, the Buddha gave her a funeral befitting a princess. So she was honored in her death. Now Rahula, their son, actually died before her. He died defending her. As I said, these tribes or these clans were often warring or fighting each other over territory or who knows what. And there were uh, two men from another tribe that were coming to harm Yashodra. And he stopped them. And he stabbed one with his sword. And then two others killed him. So he actually died defending his mother and the women of, of her monastery. So she died, and she said to the Buddha before she died, I am my own refuge. And I think this is such an important phrase that we all need to remember and we all need to make true for ourselves. I am my own refuge. Remember the Buddha taught that we should become our own refuge. We should become our own island. That we should take the teachings and make them our own. And if we don't understand something, don't agree with something, we don't just swallow it because the Buddha said so. We struggle with it, we work with it, we hold it as a question, we live it until we know for sure that it is true for us. So this is a powerful teaching. It's, as far as I know, it's something that differentiates Buddhism from any other tradition I know. Most other traditions have a book or a person or something that is the authority. And the Buddha clearly taught that we are to be our own authority. And that doesn't mean, oh, well, we just go out and do anything we want to. But it does mean that we take the teachings in and make them our own, that we live them and make sure that, yes, this is true for me. Yes, this I see. Yes, this leads to more happiness, leads to skillfulness, leads to less harm, and therefore we adopt them. So to me, Yashodra saying that I am my own refuge uh, was an important way of saying to the Buddha, you know, I have understood, I have taken the teachings in, and they are mine. I am, I am free. 
So again, why is it important that we know about Yashodra and know her story? And as I said, I, I think, as Jacqueline and others say, it's important that we women, and men too, in Buddhist practice have female role models. You know, Buddhism has been a very patriarchal tradition, just like, like all traditions have been. And especially in the West, is moving away from that um, Women in the West, you know, we're not going to allow that to remain. (laughs) I think that's one of the contributions that the West has made to Buddhist practice. In other Buddhist countries, um, women are not at all equal with um, the males. Uh, The Mechis in, in Thailand, it's my understanding, I haven't been there, but it's my understanding, they actually serve the monks. They cook for them, they wash for them, they take care of the monastery for them. And, uh, and then when they have time, they practice. But uh, in the West, of course, there's been enough of um, women's liberation, women's equality, that Western women were not going to stand for that. So, um, so women in the West... By and large, now I understand it's not totally true, but my experience in Buddhist practice has been that women are very much equal with the men. Certainly in this community, certainly Gil has been um, a shining example of that. He has always allowed women to, to be equal teachers and leaders in this community, and I think it's true at Spirit Rock, too. There may be other groups where it's not quite so true, but, um, but I think it is largely true in the Vipassana community. It's also important that we see that there can be different paths to enlightenment. In other words, Yashodra... Um, was Siddhartha's equal, but she had followed a different path. He left and went off to discover the answer to human misery. She, her path was to stay at the palace and raise their son and be supportive to um, the Buddha's mother and father and the family and the people at the palace. But as the story suggests, she had her own spiritual path. She was practicing all along, just that she was doing it a little differently. And uh, before she left, she was a lay woman raising her son. And I think this is important as a role model for us also, that we don't all have to become monks or nuns. Um, We don't have to leave our families. We can practice wherever we are. We can, our lives, however they are, work or raising children or taking care of elderly parents or whatever it is we're doing, That is our practice. 
And it doesn't have to be different. That can be a path to enlightenment the same as leaving home and um, becoming monastics and following the Buddhist teachings in that way. So uh, I think I think this is important because sometimes it gets there gets to be this notion that only the monastics are so holy or are able to reach enlightenment. And it's important that, again, we have role models of lay people, lay women, that um, through lay practice also are able to reach enlightenment. It, it, I don't know if any of you know um, Stephen and Andrea Levine. Um, they have done so much work uh, in death and dying. Well, they're pretty retired now, but they used to. And I saw them one time many years ago, probably 20, 25 years ago at Mount Madonna. And Stephen was doing the talking, but Andrea sat on a cushion right beside him. And my first impression was, <laughs> you know, I didn't like this at all. What is this? The male is doing all the teaching and the woman just sits there. But I was told and, and later understood that this was a role that Andrea um, chose and accepted. She was more comfortable sitting um, beside Stephen. And th- there was one part, I think, an exercise, or one part where she did the speaking. But apparently, she's not particularly comfortable with public speaking. And when they were doing their work with the dying, she was working right alongside Stephen. She wasn't you know, at home, she was, she was very much a part. But when they were in this teaching situation, she allowed him to do the speaking, and she was the container, you could say, or she was, she was the presence. Um, because I respect them so much, I trust that that's the truth. And again, it's an example of just a, a different way. So, um, let me read just one piece from uh, Jacqueline's um, essay. I was led to believe that Yashodra was incidental to the story of the Buddha's enlightenment at best, and a bitter deterrent at worst, but this was just one telling of the tale. Would a compassionate couple, both ready for full enlightenment, desert and resent one another? It turns out the story of Siddhartha and Yashodra present us with role models of enlightening and enlightened relationship. They were co-conspirators plotting to ease the suffering of the world. Each symbol in the story of the Buddha's life is carefully chosen the four heavenly messengers, the moment under the rose apple tree, and the Buddha's bowl swimming upstream on the day of his enlightenment. As a female-friendly culture, we can invite Yashodra back into the story of the Buddha's life. Including Yashodra offers us a view of two different paths leading to the same place, Parinibbana. 
It is important for the future of Buddhism in the West that we pass along these female-friendly models for both our sons and our daughters. We are fortunate that the story of Siddhartha and Yashodra does this with grace and beauty. So, (laughs) what do you think? How does that resonate or not (laughs) with you? That was lovely and incredible, and I have never heard it described that way, and it's such a relief (laughs) to hear that in so many ways. Um, When I was in my mid-30s, I was living in Thailand for a month as a tourist, and seeing all the beautiful Buddha structures everywhere in the temples, and so I was a little interested in Buddhism as a tourist, and so I, every time I would start out reading this story, and I would hear about the Buddhist leaving, or Siddhartha leaving his wife and child, and I would stop right there. I couldn't go any farther, and I thought, how could this enlightened spiritual leader start out that way? And so the way you described it, and the importance that his wife and mate um, um, played in all of that mm-hmm. and, and, and her own spiritual path which was different and often you know the way that we as women in, in society the path that we would be more likely to take is just very inspirational so thank you mm-hmm. thank you very much thank you mm-hmm. I think you're not alone <laughs> um, so many people have felt that way they find it very hard to accept to understand that Siddhartha would go and leave a young baby and his wife. It just goes against our conditioning, right? Mm-hmm. And, and against our cultural understanding of how relationships should go. Right. And um, so a lot of it is cultural. Yes. And so it's very helpful to understand the way they thought about things there. Good. You know, it, it actually, um, in many ways, puts more responsibility on us. It's easier. When I was younger, you know, I just, um, I just wanted to be told, and then I could do it, then I could follow, right? Uh, but I've grown into now appreciating, as you say, uh, my own path, yeah. Mm-hmm. As long as we're sincere and make effort. You know, it's not, it's not, oh, well, you know, my path is watching movies every night or uh, whatever. That too. Mm-hmm. Right. That's right. That's probably more important. Yes. Honoring whatever time uh, and whatever <laughs> tributaries or side paths we, we take. Um, I want to thank you for the entire talk, but two points for me, really resonated. Um, As she said, I am my own refuge uh, because uh, I come from violence. Mm -hmm. And so I dissociated as a child, Mm -hmm. so I'm trying Mm -hmm. to come home, Mm -hmm. but I'm trying to do it in a positive way where I also can forgive the people who are violent 
as well as myself for, you know, internalizing it. But the other thing about the, uh, that Siddhartha's wife was, there was an act of consciousness in her when he left. Prior to this, I always thought, oh, she just sat at home wailing and unhappy and the poor abandoned baby and the poor abandoned mother and, oh, what about his parents? How much pain they must have been in. But to make that switch that she had her own consciousness, she just wasn't this reactive object. So that that really, I feel like there was a real shift there mm-hmm. for me. I'm going to... Mm-hmm read again I'm going to read the Buddhist life and do it with that instead of the mm-hmm. whole oh pobrecita <laughs> you know mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. she wasn't this reactive object she was a conscious being yeah she wasn't just a victim yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. the story has usually told that you know here's this poor little abandoned baby who's victimized forever and here's this poor little abandoned wife so that's I, I really appreciate mm. hearing it with a different light. So for the refuge and for that, I thank you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It really fills out the story, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was really struck by the images of the two of, the two of them being born on the same day. Um, and and uh, I suppose that helps um, cement the idea that they were very close um, in their married life as well. Um, and and isn't that a description of a healthy development where you come together, um, falling in love with your partner, and and then in some sense growing apart. Uh, that is, you're not connected in the same, with the same dynamics in later life as you were when you fell in love, um, and and that that's really a model somehow for a um, for a healthy relationship. But I'm very troubled by the notion that the son had to defend his mother, although that's that was typical of the world in that day. That's what religion was trying to emerge from yeah. At, yeah. in the 5th or 6th century B.C. Maybe, maybe the next book will be on Rahula. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are you thinking of writing one? No. <laughs> 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 but, but as I was saying it, and as you said that, it occurred to me, hmm, I don't know that much about Rahula. Maybe maybe there's more in the literature that I just don't know, but yeah. But I think I think that is a good point that um, that people um, come together with this, you know, romance and excitement, and 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 that's kind of a foundation for uh, bringing people together. But then over time, people. Um, healthy relationships, people do develop their own paths or their own lives. And um, it's not that they're detached from the other person, but they have their own life. And in many ways, that can make the relationship more interesting, more exciting, because they each bring something when they come back 
together. It also seems important somehow um, that that Siddhartha left because in that era, um, very few males particularly developed a spiritual life. Mm. As I understand the history of, of of religious of what we call religions now that developed between about the seventh or eighth century BC and the second century BC. Anything else? So I, I come in here and I kind of hear these, this story. It's fascinating, really. I, was, I have other things to do. I was like, yeah, I'll stay for 10 minutes. And I was just, it just kept me more fascinating. And here I am at 11 o'clock. Um, I have an interesting perspective, and I'm kind of eclectic. And I am fairly, I'd say fairly seriously involved with a Hindu group where there is a heavy guru relationship. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Interestingly enough, the, the present teacher is a woman born the same day as me. <laughs> she chose that. No. <laughs> so uh, she's a few years younger, maybe five or ten years younger. And the, the predecessor was a man who gave, transmitted, and said, look, I want you to lead this. And so I already have a certain sense from this other group. And by the way, it's a group called Siddha Yoga. And there are many well-known people. Susie Orman's involved with it. I mean, there's movie stars. It's kind of a... It's not a super well-known group, but it's somewhat well-known, um, and, and it's out there somewhat mainstream in the Hindu side of things. Um, but they're big into the guru thing. And mm-hmm. I, we were just talking Friday night. I was in a group there, a study group, and they were talk- I was talking about my eclectic that I'm involved. They know I'm involved with this Buddhism heavily. And so I come here, and I kind of have both sides. Mm-hmm. I'm really resistant to having a guru, I really like the idea of having your own refuge. But I see the power of a spiritual presence of a master. I I feel it. Mm -hmm. So I can't go in and say, hey, I I don't have a principle. It's like, oh, I feel this presence. When I go into that ashram down there in San Jose or in Oakland, I feel that presence, Mm -hmm. but I feel it here too. Mm -hmm. So um, this... I think the guru path is a powerful path. And I don't think there has to be a conflict. No. Because I think ultimately um, uh, one can make the path their own, even with a guru. Right. It reminds me of the story of Ramdas, that Ramdas tells when uh, he was in India and, of course, um, had a guru and was very devoted to him. But word came... I think it was when his mother was dying. I can't remember if she had died or she was dying. And um, uh, what was his guru's name? Baba. Neem Karoli Baba. Oh, Neem Karoli Baba, yeah. Uh, told him that he shouldn't leave, that he should stay there. And Ramdas said, you don't understand. That might be okay in this society. I'm from America, and I must go home to my mother. And he did. He left. 
So I think that's an example of, of, you know, as far as I know, Ramdas was totally following that guru path and very devoted, very absolutely, yeah. But when something major like his mother dying happened, he was able to say, "No, I'm sorry, that doesn't work for me. I must go," and he left. And of course, then he went back and resumed the relationship, and, and there was no problem. But that, that story always impresses me, you know, that one can be so devoted and at the same time not totally lose <laughs> uh, their sense of perspective or what, whatever you call it. Yeah, yeah I, for me, one of the things I need to look into myself more is I don't have a, this is a great story, I don't have a real strong association with like Buddhist nuns. Mm -hmm. I don't go to hear them or anything, Mm -hmm. and yet here I am going to city yoga where there's a woman who's a guru who leads it, (laughs) and I'm kind of somewhat at home there. Uh And it's kind of, I kind of wonder about myself, what's going on? Now, I came (laughs) from a violent, abusive household with Uh. a violent mother, so both parents were, so I I know I've got stuff about (laughs) women to deal with. It's like, not all healed, so... But it's kind of fun, weird. It's kind of weird that I follow a path on a Hindu side that's a woman leader, and I don't deal, I don't even know these nuns who come here to talk. I see them <laughs> once in a while, and, and yet I'm fascinated by this story. Yeah. It's a question to live. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we should stop. It's a few minutes after, and I'll be around if anybody has questions or comments. Yeah. Have a lovely day.